following podcast is sponsored by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. I'm your host, Louis G. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener. The Land Before Time. The Land Before Time 2. The Land Before Time 3. The Land Before Time 4. The Land Before Time 5. The Land Before Time 6. The Land Before Time 7. The Land Before Time 8. The Land Before Time 9. The Land Before Time 10. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where usually we watch a movie every week and then try to determine which one is cooler, robots or dinosaurs. I'm your host, Louis G, and with me as always is my co-host, a new co-host every week. This week, I have a very special co-host, dinosaur expert, Eliza Peterson. Welcome, Eliza. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. This is an awesome opportunity. Uh, Yeah, let's do this. All right. So uh, listeners, you may recognize Eliza from her amazing TikTok video that's been blowing up this week. I I would refer to this video as Meteor Meteor, the Meteor Meteor video. Is that what people are colloquially calling it? Yeah, I think so. Um, It's it's been fun to see the interpretations of that in different languages, but as an only English speaker, I think Meteor Meteor is perfect. Oh, man. Can I ask you about, like, uh, what do you mean by that with interpretations of different languages? Um, I've gotten tons of videos sent to me. People are dubbing my video in different languages. The first one I saw was in Portuguese. It was beautiful. Um, I've gotten, I got a video from Indonesia. Um, I had a video that translated my original video into an American indigenous language. It was beautiful. The most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Way better than my video. Didn't understand a word, but I could, <laughs> I still loved it. <laughs> Amazing. In case you haven't seen it yet, and if you don't know what we're referring to, uh, check out Eliza's TikTok. I'm going to leave a link to it in the show notes, but she is at uh, Liza Mopeti. L-I-Z-E-M-O-P-E-T-E-Y. Again, that'll be in the show notes, so you can just click on it easily. Check out this video. It is fantastic. And it is the reason that I reached out to you, Eliza, to come onto the show today and talk dinosaurs. Is it fair to call you a dino fan? You know what? I would say yes. (laughs) I was one of those kids that would take the shovel into the backyard and dig religiously to try to find a dinosaur. Much to my parents' dismay, of course, their perfect sod was now completely torn up because of my love of finding dinosaurs. I had dinosaur-themed birthday parties, dinosaur clothing. I was that kid. Uh, Still kind of am, I think, but at a much more professional level. Mm -hmm. And so at a professional level, are you, do you, is it, is it right to call you a paleontologist or is that like after you get your PhD or? I think, you know, it's funny who you ask. They say different answers to that, right? I think a paleontologist is really anybody that as a scientist, if you're studying paleontology, you can be a paleontologist. I personally I'm a volunteer with the Natural History Museum of Utah. I've been in that paleontology department for five years. Uh, I work with them in the labs and in the field, which is my specialty. I love going out in the field with the paleontology crew. I definitely wouldn't consider myself an expert necessarily. There's so much to learn, but I'm excited to continue learning and to continue growing. And I'd love to get my PhD in paleontology, specifically vertebrate paleontology. And hopefully that can happen soon. 
which would be awesome. 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 Uh, This is something we're probably going to unpack a little bit later when we start talking about sci-fi and movies. Do you work with any paleobotanists or, very curious about this, paleo-veterinarians? And I'm asking because I want to know if those are actual things. Okay. These these terms that you've just announced are definitely real things. Yes. Um, They are awesome. They're in those fields that I, I don't think I could ever get into, because they are so complicated. It is an entirely different subset of research and specimens and the process that you have to go through to actually learn about these things is, I think, much harder. And so I think that's why that's such a small subset of people that fall into this paleobotanist and paleo-veterinary fields. It's way too complicated for me, but I do admire the practice. It's very, very cool. So you said that you've had a love of dinosaurs since a very young age, and uh, you know that's that seems to be what motivated you to want to go into the field of paleontology. What uh, what do you think was maybe your first exposure to dinosaurs, or the first thing that that made you fall in love with them or, or be fascinated with them? So I I do hope that we get to discuss this later. The Land Before Time, nineteen eighty eight, classic film. I you know saw that I think. It must have been as a newborn because I just watched that my entire life. And that, I think, solidified not only the moral aspect of you can do anything, you know, if you have the right friends, if you have the right attitude, um, but also that love of prehistory and seeing how Mm. the earth especially shifted during that time. The Mesozoic era is really, really complicated and fascinating. And I think Land Before Time kind of does it really delicately, but establishes how much the earth changed in that, how much creatures changed in that. And I think that's what started my scientific love of paleontology was this movie from the 80s, which I still adore to this day. Oh, it's so good. It is a beautiful movie. We're definitely going to talk about it. It's also a movie about diversity, which I think is beautiful. It it, it has a really good message for kids because at the beginning, of course, a lot of the dinosaurs are uh, segregating themselves based on their species and type. And, you know, that's kind of the, the story is how these diverse dinosaurs come together and work together. Um, so it's a really nice, like sneaky little positive message for kids. Yeah, right. You know, it's you, you can't judge a book by its cover. And I think that's described even as kind of a raceway um, mm-hmm. at the very beginning, you know, oh, yeah. when when Sarah's dad says, we don't play with long necks. Like, that's yeah, so three, blatant. Three horns don't play with long necks. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he said that, right? He went there. Yeah. And, and I think even as a child, you know what that means. Mm-hmm. You understand the implications of that. And I think a lot of kids in many parts of the United States, at least, have heard that same exact thing as a child. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that plays really gently but really effectively with such a young audience. And I think that was why it was so effective with me. I understood that. I could relate to that. It was tragic and beautiful, this whole film. It really touches on those things really delicately and I think really well. Uh, Eliza, one of the reasons I'm so excited to interview you today is because you're actually, you're living one of my dreams. Oh, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) I I think it's interesting that you saw dinosaur movies and that made you want to become a paleontologist 
I'm a little bit of the opposite journey in a funny way. I was obsessed with dinosaurs as a kid. I, I believe that I probably learned to draw dinosaurs when I was two. By the time I was five or six, I could tell you, I remember I remember like watching The Land Before Time and thinking, wait a minute, but there's no way that this the Brontosaurus and the Triceratops yeah, they, are they in the same. they couldn't exist at the same yeah. time, right? Yeah. <laughs> and like at six years old, I was like, hang on a second. Yeah, um, right? <laughs> so I was obsessed with dinosaurs. My goal in life was to be a paleontologist. And I remember in, in second grade, a teacher asked everybody in the class, what do you want to be when you grow up? And when I said that, she paused and she was like, that sounds great. What is a paleontologist? Oh. <laughs> yes, yes. And so uh, what actually changed my trajectory for me was when I was 10 years old, Jurassic Park came out on my 10th birthday. Nice. And Jurassic Park was the first movie that I cared about in my life. It was the first movie that because it had dinosaurs in it and they looked so awesome from the trailer that I had to like read every magazine article about the behind the scenes making of it. I had to get all the toys. I was so hyped up to go see it. The moment I came out of the theater, I didn't want to be a paleontologist anymore because I wanted to be somebody that like makes movies about dinosaurs or shows dinosaurs to people in, in, in images or something like that. I wanted yeah. to be Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't um, everybody want to be Steven Spielberg, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and who also had a big hand in the, the Land Before Time, of course. Uh, oh, yeah. George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. I mean, executive, they couldn't have chosen a better child cartoon to executive produce in the 80s, right? They, Absolutely. I think it was the perfect team. I think they nailed it. It was awesome. Eliza, before we get into the movie, The Land Before Time, there are a couple of questions. Uh, I, I have some questions, of course, because I'm, I'm very, very <laughs> big dino fan, as you could probably see. Yeah, for um, sure. You can probably tell from my, my just excitement in, in general. I have some questions. I also asked some of my listeners and some of my previous guests if they had some questions um, since you were going to be, uh, since they knew I was going to be interviewing you today. Awesome. Lay them on me. Awesome. This is my number one question. And I, I think this is the thing that my listeners are really going to want to know the most. There is something we talk about on almost every episode of the podcast. When we get into dinosaur movies versus robot movies, we always talk about, I always like to ask my guests, what is your image of a dinosaur? To you, I want to know when you close your eyes and you picture a dinosaur, you know about the science of dinosaurs. You know uh, that, they, you know, that, that we've, really updated a lot of our previous misconceptions about yes, them. Yes, definitely. That they're a lot less uh, lizard-like, a lot less scaly and more avian. Mm -hmm. And so, but I can tell you, honestly, I can confess that when I close my eyes and picture a dinosaur, I see the T-Rex from Jurassic Park. <laughs> um, and, and I think everybody kind of does in, in that regard. It, that, that specific movie and that specific style of making dinosaurs, those big, beefy, scaly reptiles has shaped everybody with, yeah, that's no question in my mind. So when you are, when somebody says, uh, let's say they just offhand say dinosaur, do, does an image of uh, something big with feathers pop into your head or do you yes. immediately... <laughs> Okay. okay. Oh, it's feathers. It's always feathers. <laughs> That's at, awesome. at least, at least the dinosaurs, you know. And I'm, I, I have to preface this. I'm from Utah, so I'm biased mm. towards Utah dinosaurs, um, and specifically a Utah raptor. That, that is the, that is what I picture 
as a dinosaur, a beautiful feathered Utah raptor up on its hind legs, screeching to the world. I couldn't imagine anything more beautiful than that. What, uh, what does a Utah raptor look like compared to, let's say, the velociraptors in Jurassic Park, which, in my opinion, are probably closer to like a Deinonychus than an actual velociraptor because <laughs> they're much, much bigger. Yeah. You know, Utah raptors, I definitely think were, were much, much bigger. And, and I don't mean that like beefy necessarily because meaty meaty, if you will (laughs) um because i I am also a side note of the theory that a lot of the dinosaurs in mainstream media are vastly under muscled um i think they're much much meatier than people really give them credit for but yeah that's that's a really good question and we do get this a lot um at the museum that i spend most of my time at but i think not only in a anatomical way but as a lifestyle, Utah raptors were very threatening, much more heavy prey, much more dangerous. The scary ones that you're going to see in Jurassic Park, those are Utah raptors. The ones that are going okay. to attack people are Utah raptors. Velociraptors were much more slender, much faster. They would run after their prey and hunt it like that instead of ambushing and attacking. I mean, from a scientific standpoint, the bone structure is much different. Um, Stiffness of a tail, uh, the structure of the bones in the feet, length of the legs in general were, were much different between the two. But I see personally Utah raptors far superior to velociraptors, in my personal opinion. Um, but that's what I see them as. Feathered, strong, big legs, big arms, big chest, ready to just tackle. While velociraptors are cute and little and skinny. And I love them anyway, but definitely not as much as I love a Utah raptor. What reinforces your belief that they had a lot more muscle? And what might it be that makes us um, have this misconception that they're much skinnier? Um, I think paleo artists from the 1800s have a big piece in this. Um, paleo artists in the 1800s typically designed and drew dinosaurs based on just their bones and put very, very little meat around them at all. Uh, and unfortunately, I think that practice carried over well into the 1900s. And so people didn't really say back in the 1800s when they were drawing these, back in the really early 1900s, drawing these dinosaurs, they weren't thinking, well, how is this similar to a rhinoceros? Because, you know, you see those rhinoceros like abdomens, and they're huge. They're so meaty and they're so thick. And if we drew a rhinoceros the same way we draw dinosaurs like you typically see them, you wouldn't recognize it as a rhinoceros. It'd be too skinny. And so I think the fact that we spent so long drawing dinosaurs as pretty much just skin right on the bones that we could lay out and that we could see anyway, really reinforced the idea a hundred years later that it's still exactly like that. And it's not. And and we can see that relating dinosaurs to modern day animals, that they're much, much heavier than they actually are depicted in media. This It kind of creates this overall shrink-wrapped problem. And that's a really mm. common term that we use in the paleontology field. Depicting these dinosaurs without fat, without feathers, with just their skin and muscle tight on the bone, that is a shrink-wrapped dinosaur. That is not what it looked like, in my opinion. Much bigger, much meatier. 
is it uh, only carnivores that would have been feathered or would like four-legged herbivores also, like a, like a triceratops, would that also have been a feathered animal? I don't believe that any necessarily four-legged dinosaur would have been feathered because there mm. wasn't a need to be feathered necessarily. And And the only dinosaurs, in my experience at least, that we have found indication of feathers uh, are, are these dinosaurs that are up on their two legs with, with smaller arms that would have been used for not running. This is all a hypothesis. There's, there's you know, no 100% way to say maybe someday traveling back in time. I know there's been a whole slew of movies about why that's a horrible idea. I wouldn't be opposed for, to trying, maybe. <laughs> first and foremost, I doubt you could breathe uh, the air. It'd be too thick, right? Y- yes, definitely. The, um, the, there wasn't any holes in the ozone, so mm. I think that made a huge difference as well. Yeah. You know, I, I think the Earth itself has been much more survivable for small beings like us. In any regard, non-avian dinosaurs, I believe, had a lot of feathers, even if they have only been depicted like that recently. But I, I highly doubt that it would be the four-legged dinosaurs as well. Awesome. That kind of fits like what I would imagine. Because I, I, I see, uh, when I see a triceratops or an artist's depiction of one, everything about it seems like a, like a herd animal to me, like a, like a rhinoceros or an elephant. Um, and it's really hard for me to picture it with fe- feathers, but I can very easily picture something sleek and, and predatory, like a Utah raptor or a T-Rex having feathers. Like, Because big birds are already scary. Ostriches are scary. I, I was attacked oh, yeah. by An goose emu? once. I'm scared. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think, you know, people tend to think that crocodiles are modern day dinosaurs and they're not you know they're they're the the 18th cousins grandpa's nephew's sister-in-law's dog to a dinosaur right it it, uh, uh, birds are dinosaurs birds are the modern day dinosaurs but you know when you make the joke that a a chicken and a t-rex are you know first cousins that's not too far off they are they're they're similar and and it's because that Tyrannosaur, you know, had those hind legs. They and and that's why I believe, at least, they kind of fall into that category of non-avian dinosaurs. You know, dinosaurs that weren't didn't typically fly anyway. They still fell into that category a lot of the time. You know, just based on the fact that a lot of research has been done on dinosaurs with a similar makeup to that. Elythronax is is another one of those dinosaurs that we have kind of seen really similar pock marks on the bones where the feathers would have been. And Elythronax is closer to a tyrannosaur than, you know, anything else would have been back then. And so that's what kind of makes us see that dinosaurs like that would have been feathered are these pock marks in the bones where the muscle indentation from the feathers have, have, made these indentations on the bones that we find on birds today. And that's, that's, you know, one of the biggest connections that we can make through the two of those are these pockmarks on the bones. Amazing. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. I ever since watching Jurassic Park and then uh, updating all of my previous notions of what dinosaurs look like, in my mind, I went from looking at them as, you know, reptilian scaly things the way I, I sort of landed on or the, the description of them that I sort of landed on that I would love to see if it's at all accurate, is it fair to say that a, a dinosaur is almost like the way that an amphibian is the link between like a fish and a reptile? 
Is a dinosaur almost the link between a reptile and a bird? Yeah, I would I would think that that's fair because we have to remember that for all intents and purposes, a dinosaur is still a reptile. Uh, you know, for the most part, they they led, laid eggs like reptiles, soft shell eggs like a turtle as opposed to a hard shell egg like a bird. You know, I think the dinosaurs that kind of transitioned more to lakes and rivers and more amphibious dinosaurs, uh, which I can only think of one off the top of my head, which is a, a houseceraptor, but the, the non- kind of water dinosaurs, if you could call them that, that were much more frequently found in lakes and rivers, I think probably still had the same lifestyle terrestrially as the armored, crested, long-necked dinosaurs that we typically see that roam terrestrially. I think they're still from the same family, and I think it still all leads back to birds. Very cool. On a previous episode, a friend of mine, uh, Chris Behan and I, we, we reviewed the movie Jaws. And the justification for it, I always let my guest pick whatever movie we're going to talk about. And the justification was we, we talked a lot about the production of Jaws and the fact that they used a robot. So that yeah, fulfilled the robot <laughs> quota. Um, but we did because I asked my guests the same questions anyway. Uh, we do talk about robots and dinosaurs. We did dig into, is it fair to say that because sharks are prehistoric, because they've always been around, is it fair to say that they're a dinosaur? I landed on no, but I assume that sharks might have eaten dinosaurs. So (laughs) I don't know if there's any evidence of that, but I speculate. Yeah. So um, as far as I can see, sharks, I think, well, see, this is a tricky question because there's a lot of, you know, evolution that plays into a part of this and, and a lot of unanswered questions that it's really hard to actually pinpoint. I think that sharks are definitely relatives. I think that the great, 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 great grandfather of a shark that you'd see today definitely existed with the dinosaurs, if not maybe 20 million years right after the dinosaurs, right? Because we see Megalodon, which I... I believe was the largest predator that, you know, resembled a shark only went extinct two million years ago. Uh, so what, in your words, what's the difference between say a shark and a Mosasaurus? Oh boy. See these, these questions get a little bit trickier for me because we don't have Mosasauruses in Utah. <laughs> and oh, I have, okay. a, I have a very specific study that I do, I guess, um, about a very specific subset of dinosaurs. <laughs> Okay, and and cool. so uh, water dinosaurs, I think, are beautiful and, and wonderful. And I'd love to learn more about them in the future. But I'm hesitant to answer because I don't have all the answers on those ones. <laughs> no worries at all. No worries at all. Uh, Eliza, the world was shook. A lot of people um, that I know were shook when we found out uh, when Neil deGrasse Tyson declassified Pluto as no longer a planet. I think he's he's sort of equivocated on that and he calls it a dwarf planet now. Yeah. I, w- I was personally, here's the thing. I wasn't upset about that because that's science and, and science is supposed to build upon whatever we discovered earlier. And when we make new discoveries, it's okay that they replace our previous notions. However, I was personally shook um, several years ago when I was told that a brontosaurus is not a thing. And then a few years after that, I was told that it is a thing. So is a brontosaurus a thing? (laughs) So yes and no, I think. Um, (laughs) Let's unpack this. (laughs) Let's let's unpack this. Um, 
I think the problem is a lot of brontosauruses that were discovered and labeled as a brontosaurus weren't a brontosaurus. Um, they were they were apatosaurus, and and we know that now from ones that we found like in Utah, and and I I think that brontosaurus kind of got a bad rap because it had so many different kinds of itself that people said, you know what, we've already distinguished all of these as other dinosaurs and kind of just let it all go. I think the general consensus as to this point is yes, they do exist, but not nearly as many as we anticipated, just based on the research that we found in support of other dinosaurs, other long-necked dinosaurs that were found during this time period. Um, mm that were originally labeled as a brontosaurus, but didn't actually, you know, couldn't fit that exact role. Um, okay. So my consensus is, yeah, sure. It can be real. If you want it to be real, sure. Okay. That's great. One, <laughs> one theory I remember hearing at the time that led to the, the misclassification is that they found a, a brontosaurus skull and they had classified it as, as a certain type of, uh, is, it sor- is sauropod the right term? sauropod um but then later at the dig site they found the crest of what would uh normally be on a brachiosaurus skull and so they sort of re-examined well um have we found all of these like sauropod skulls that are actually a brachiosaur where the crest was broken off or 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 something like that is there any merit to that theory yeah, I, I think one of the problems with finding dinosaurs specifically and and I have definitely had this I'm going to say pleasant opportunity, um, is finding a dinosaur without a huge indicating piece of what it actually is. Um, it's really, really easy for bones to get absolutely scattered to the wind. I mean, they've been there, um, for some of these sauropods, 200 million years. And a lot can happen in that time. A lot of skulls can get damaged and missing pieces are found all the time. It's not uncommon to reclassify dinosaurs. I, I think it's much more common than people like to give it credit for. I, I think, you know, if you're still learning and you're still looking, there's all the reason for change. There's all the reason to make a new discovery or reclassify an old discovery. So I think that definitely has some merit that, you know, there was just a little mistake, um, piece of a head, didn't make it all the way back. I think that totally happens. It's awesome. happened to me, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so th- there's definitely a lot of speculation, obviously. A lot of, uh, a lot of your field is, is, is theory. And sci-fi movies tend to take those theories and run with them. For example, uh, is there any evidence whatsoever that a Dilophosaurus or any other type of dinosaur would have had the capability to spit venom? You know... I don't believe in my, I don't want to call it a professional opinion in case somebody has a much more professional opinion than I do. From what I have studied and what I have learned, there is no conclusive evidence that that could have ever happened. Um, There are some dinosaurs that we have that we can kind of examine the bone structure and say, all right, this may have operated as a sounding device or a coolant, an air conditioner system. Um, And what I'm specifically referring to is like a Parasaurolophus has a big hump on the back of its head. And there's a lot of speculation as to what that actually is. Um, 
And some people think it was a sound device. The sound traveled up, vibrated in this little crest, and then came out to warn the herd. Um, other people think it was a, you know, a coolant. The, the nerve endings that existed in this crest, you know, it would breathe in the air, cool down the nervous system, and it would help them to keep running until they could find enough water to cool them down any other way. There's, but you know, there's no conclusive evidence to what that crest actually is in in any other dinosaur that may or may not have spit poison saliva um i i'm i'm not entirely convinced it's impossible but i will say no conclusive evidence has been found yet that's fair. In but the a heavy emphasis on yet. <laughs> yet. Yeah. Well, again, like the, like the Brontosaurus, we could just make a new discovery and then update mm-hmm. our science. So, and that's, always, that's the exciting thing about science. Yes, definitely. In the case of the Parasaurolophus, can you help me with the pronunciation? So in Utah, we say it Parasaurolophus. Parasaurolophus. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, please, if I mispronounce any dinosaur names, I would love for you to correct oh, me. It's all good. Because <laughs> um, I want to be able to pronounce them right. So Parasaurolophus. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is there any, uh, is it possible that it was something like, like a camel's like uh, water storage or anything like that? You know, looking at a, at a Parasaurolophus skull, and we have several in Utah that we've been able to dig up over the past maybe 15 years. The way that the, the actual crest grows throughout adulthood uh, may be an indicator that it was more connected to the nervous system as the nervous system grew. I'm not sure that it would have been a water hump because I don't think it actually had any valves, if you will, to make it possible for it to use that water in any way. Um, as as I believe, it was pretty... It's It's still kind of unknown what that little hump is for. Um, and, and, you know, some people think it was for protection as well. Perhaps I don't know. Meeting, like a, or like Maybe. Sort of, yeah. If it was like yeah. big enough, um, you know, water is a good theory. I'll bring it up at the labs and see what the general consensus is. <laughs> awesome. I really hope you'll follow up with me on that yes. when you get an answer. <laughs> In the movie Jurassic Park 3, there's a lot of speculation where they 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 find I think it's the the vocal the vocal what they find are like a fossilized vocal cord or like the I guess the neck vertebrate of raptors and they assume that they they can tell what sounds it would have made based on that um, in the yeah. first Jurassic Park movie they did a lot of sound mixing with like elephants and lions and other animals to get the sound of the T-Rex roar. How much do we actually know about what dinosaurs would have sounded like? Uh, you know, it's it's hard to say necessarily because, you know, <laughs> you're asking such good questions and I feel bad that I can't give really precise answers, but this isn't oh, no. a really precise field, you know? <laughs> Don't feel bad, Eliza. This is primarily a comedy and sci-fi podcast. Um, we are excited to have you on as... Uh, I don't want to under underplay you, but like the closest <laughs> thing to a dinosaur expert that I could hope to get on this on this podcast. Oh, but yeah, like, you're you. the perfect guest because you're you're uh, you are, in my opinion, an expert on on dinosaurs, and also you're hilarious. So, oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I can't necessarily answer what they would have sound like unless we kind of revisit what their closest relatives would have sounded like, and I think that's why. Recently, they've gotten more of the um, less of a roar and more of a screech. 
You know, you'll see in the movies, it's less like a lion and more like a very angry swan. It's (laughs) what we know from our dinosaurs that we have today that are living among us, I think tells us a lot of of what they would have sounded like back then. Now, I'm definitely not an expert in that specific region. And off the top of my head, I can't even think of anyone that I work with that's an expert in that specific region. But we do have some indicators that there may or may not have had um, like resonating boxes, kind of like you see in Jurassic Park 3. You know, it it kind of is this like resonating vocal chamber. Um, I think that has some merit in, in specific dinosaurs that would have had that capability capability in their near their neck vertebrate based on tendon imprints but i mean it's highly unlikely that we would ever actually find vocal cords fossilized but i love that idea (laughs) (laughs) and i I may be misremembering exactly what the the thing was the macguffin was that they had yeah Um, but i just remember there was a scene where he like literally blew into it to mimic the sounds of (laughs) like a conch shell of like a raptor yeah (laughs) like a like a tiny like frog trumpet i think is like how mm. they kind of refer to it but yeah so it, it's it's hard to say but it's you know i think that's been the funnest part of these movies however wildly inaccurate they may be a lot of theories have come from it and it's totally okay <laughs> awesome i have uh, a few listener submitted questions here and yeah. um these are all sort of surrounding questions about your research in in the field and like what actually happens in the field one thing I really want to dig into is you have, in addition to your awesome Meteor meteor video on your TikTok, I watched a few of your videos where you answer questions about dinosaurs and the one where you demonstrate how you distinguish between a rock and a fossil. Um, yes. In case any of our listeners have not seen that video, which again, please check out Eliza's TikTok. The link is in the show notes. Uh, watch that video. But if you haven't seen it, uh, Eliza, can you tell us how in the field you can determine whether something is a rock or a fossil? I'm happy to. I will preface this by saying, if you are going to try this in the field, please have water handy. Your tongue <laughs> will get sandy and you need it to be moist for this to actually work. So what happens when a fossil becomes a fossil? When dinosaur bone has you know, reached the point in its existence that it is no longer bone. It is fossil. It is rock. The sediment replaces the natural organic makeup of the actual bone piece by piece. And what you're left with is really, really porous, porous fossils. The moisture in your tongue, if you lick a fossil, will seep into these pores and it'll suck your tongue in along with it because the moisture will naturally want to grab onto your tongue and pull it in. And so what you're having is almost a vacuum effect or I, I, I used to say Velcro, but it, it doesn't feel like Velcro. It feels mm. like tiny, tiny vacuums pulling your tongue in and your tongue will stick to a dinosaur bone. It'll stick to a lot of bone. And it typically, I think there's only one or two types of actual rock that it'll stick to, but that's really rare. But it will stick to a dinosaur bone much more aggressively than a normal bone just because of how porous the internal bone structure actually is. Um, It's an incredible feeling. Um, It's a little freaky. I guarantee there's nothing that feels like it. It feels like a million tiny vacuums sucking your tongue out of your mouth which is bizarre. And I love it. It's one of my favorite things to demonstrate. 
Yeah, on on some, I'm kind of jealous of uh, watching you do that. And like, I, I I've never wanted to lick a dinosaur fossil, but now I do after watching you do it. Oh, good. That's what I'm trying to inspire, right? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I never, I think I never in a million years or 65 million years would have ever <laughs> thought to to lick a dinosaur fossil because I would be worried about like, oh no, I'm going to contaminate uh, the sample or something like that. But that's clearly not a concern, right? I mean, it's been outside for 65 million years. It has yeah. <laughs> faced much worse. I mean, we've, we've got dinosaur bones, I'm sure, that have been digested several times by other animals. It oh, happens. Yeah. It's fine. And that, that is one of the questions I get when I do demonstrate licking a bone is, you know, what if an animal has peed on that bone? What if a human at some point has peed on that bone? You know, I can't guarantee like that it hasn't happened. <laughs> Yeah, like a hiker walking past, you know, he just got to pull off to the side for a minute and happens to go on a dinosaur bone that I lick four days later. We try not to think about it and just move on and have the good experience of licking a bone. You can also clean it. Um, I think a big part of what we do in the lab is cleaning the bones that we've actually found in the field, determined that they're bones, and then brought them back to the museum to work on in these paleontology labs. But we have to clean a lot of these bones or we won't be able to put them back together. And it's really like a 65 million year old puzzle, right? You've got thousands of pieces of, say, a single skull, and you're trying to attach all of these pieces together and each piece has 12 sides and any of those 12 sides might match up with any of the 12 sides of the thousands of bones that are in this plastic bag or it might match up to a piece that you left in the field or it might match up to a piece that doesn't exist anymore and if you're not going to clean these first you're going to have no chance of actually ever finding the right piece. Sand and loose sediment plays a huge role on how well a dinosaur bone will actually fit back together. And so we take a little toothbrush, we take a little dental pick, run them under some hot water, make sure they're nice and clean, and that's when we start putting them back together. And you know, you're more than welcome to lick a bone after it's been cleaned and sanitized and it's great. It's been through much worse than a tongue. <laughs> It sounds like it takes a lot of uh, patience and intrepidity to do what you do. Yeah, I don't love lab work as much as I love field work. Um, I, I think a big part of my field work is prospecting. Uh, we are going to southern Utah specifically, at least for my museum, looking for bone in the field, looking for bone in the side of a mountain, under rocks, under trees, in the sand, in the dirt. Uh, and we're trying not to fall off cliffs while we're doing it. You know, it's, it's very adventure heavy. And I admire that. And I love, love, love prospecting. Quarry work is a little harder. It's very, very detail oriented. And I don't necessarily have the patience or the focus to do a ton of quarry work, especially in 105 degree heat in the desert of Southern Utah in the middle of summer. That is like my worst nightmare is doing quarry work like that. But it's still really important. And I love the people that do quarry work. <laughs> Yeah, working in a quarry is really important in the process. And I'm I'm sad that I don't have more patience for it because I think I would end up being pretty good at it. But lab work is similar to quarry work, except you're in a air-conditioned museum and you can listen to music and you're alone and it's lovely and it's nice. <laughs> so so I prefer lab work, but a lot of lab work is that same thing, you know, being really delicate with the bones the best that you can, but you know, they've been through a lot. They can stand a lot. So we clean them up. We try to put them back together the best we can. I mean, it takes years, 
but it's really rewarding work. Once you see the finished process, you've got a skull and it's put together and it is beautiful. That makes it all worth it, especially if you're the one that found it in the field. You've seen it at its worst and now you are presenting it at its best. It's gorgeous and it's an incredibly fulfilling experience. I get a sense of pride when I get a box of Legos and I know for sure every piece I need is in that box. When I put that thing together, I feel like I've accomplished something. So I can only imagine if you took the time to find each individual piece buried under layers of sediment and rock and all kinds of obscurities uh, and then put that together, the kind of pride you would feel. That must be amazing. Yeah, it's you know, it's life-changing, especially when you find bone that is still in rock. You have to chip away at the rock so that there's none of this kind of matrix that surrounds the, the actual fossil. You're trying to chip away at this rock. And when you chip away far enough that you're seeing a piece of bone from the underside where you wouldn't have seen it in the field, you're the first person to see that. You are the first human in existence to see that specific part of that bone. Holy cow, doesn't that make you feel small? I mean, I, I, I kind of realize this every time I go in, that I am such a blip in history's radar uh, that I get this opportunity to be a part of something so much bigger than myself. It is humbling and it is breathtaking. And I, I couldn't emphasize more how lucky I feel to be able to be doing that. I'm, I'm so honored by that opportunity. Yeah. You not only get to be one of the first or the first person to ever see it, you get to be the first person to ever lick it too. (laughs) And and that's where the real pride comes in right there. Uh, I have a question here submitted by um, friend of the show, robo enthusiast, PJ Mancuso. And I think it relates to prospecting in the field. So I'm very curious about this myself. Uh, in the in Jurassic Park, there's a scene when they're in uh, Badlands, Montana, and they do they have this contraption that they use. I, I believe it. they put a shotgun shell into it and fire it directly into the ground. And they're doing some sort of seismic imaging. Um, the, the line there, the technician says they shoot the radar into the ground and the bone bounces the image back. Is that at all uh, a realistic piece of equipment or something that you have experience with? So I've never, ever experienced anything like that. I'm not going to say it doesn't exist. I, you know, I think it would be a little far-fetched to say we definitely haven't tried something like that because I'm sure that paleontologists have. I've never had to do that. Uh, everything that I found in the field you know, everything worth bringing back is already pretty much up at the surface. Um, And I think that's a really good part about working in Southern Utah is the earth has eroded so specifically that all of the dinosaur, you know, that's available to be taken back is right there on top. It's on the surface. Um, Yeah, we do have to do quite a bit of quarry work to get the rest of it out, but I don't think we've ever shot the ground with a sonar device, a radar sound Think. I don't think we've ever done that with our museum. I would love to try it. And if anybody would like to come out and try it, give me a call because I, I would love to go and see if it works. That's science, isn't it? You know, taking yeah. a guess and trying it to its fullest. <laughs> The, the, part, the part of that that makes me think uh, that a paleontologist would never want to do that is what if you're blasting down directly into the, where the samples are and you, and you yeah, destroy them? That would make me so nervous. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, 
it's been through a lot already. And I recognize that. Um, and I've even broken stuff in the labs. I've, I had a beautiful piece of a skull from a phytosaur and I dropped it on the tile of our labs and it broke in half. And I was devastated. Um, and I called our lab manager and I said, you know, I think that I just wrecked my fossil that I've been working on. I'm heartbroken. I don't know what to do. And he was like, did you try super glue? And we just glued it back together and it was great. Nobody can tell. And, and you know, that's the whole process of lab work anyway. But I don't want to actively hurt the fossils. Mm -hmm. I don't want to actively destroy them at all. And so that would make me really nervous, even getting close to something like that. To it, that oh my goodness. Is it fair to say you don't want to Tyrannosaurus wreck them? Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, that hurt. <laughs> uh, do you hey. mind if I use that in my next TikTok? I'm making a living off of dinosaur puns here. <laughs> please do, please do. Yes. Uh, yeah, um, uh, absolutely. <laughs> that won't be my last dinosaur pun. It won't be the worst one either. I promise you that. Oh, I'm excited. Uh, <laughs> okay, I have another. I have another listener submitted question. Um, actually, no. Before we move on to that one, because I do. I, I uh, without the seismic imaging, what what would you say is like the? And not to say not to say that the seismic imaging would, in theory, even be a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> I think sure. we I think we sort of debunked <laughs> that. Um, what is it that? Is there a thing, is there a factor that lets you know you're, you're close? You're, you're close to a, a site. You're, you, there's a very good chance that like, this is where we should spend hours and hours digging. Like what, 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 what gives you that clue? Yes, definitely. I love this question um, because I had this question. Uh, the first two years I was out in the field, I found nothing. And it turns out I wasn't a bad paleontologist. I just didn't know what I was looking for. Um, well, I knew what I was looking for. I just didn't know what kind of rock I was looking for to find this stuff in in the first place. I can only speak to Southern Utah, and I apologize that that's such a narrow view of the dinosaur world, but it's, it's the place that I'm most comfortable working, um, and I have the most experience there. So in Southern Utah specifically, I'll say Canyonlands or Grand Staircase, Escalante National Monument, the rock formation that is purple while the rest of the sedimentary rock is more beige, that's a really good indicator. And what has happened is the sedimentary rock has oxidized because of the breakup of the original bone. The iron in the bone has caused the sedimentary rock to actually shift colors and become this really rich purple hue. And so typically when you're looking on the side of a mountain uh, down in southern Utah, when you're excavating for bones, there's typically one big long streak across the mountain that's much more purple than the rest of the sedimentary rock around it, you are very, very likely to find something in that or directly below that from things that have weathered outside of the mountain and have since fallen down into the ravines below, which ravines are also a very good indicator that something has traveled that way in the past, especially when it's being brought down by water. So I would definitely say keep an eye out for iron and rust colored rock if you're prospecting and check those ravines. I, you're bound to find something that's fallen down in 65 million years, I hope. <laughs> so when we sing God bless America, when we're talking about purple mountains, majesty, we're actually talking <laughs> about dinosaurs, right? 
I, I, that's how I sing it. I'm not going to persuade anybody else to sing it like that. I'm not going to force my beliefs on anyone like that. But if you're singing it for another reason, you're not singing it for the right reason. <laughs> Bingo. This last listener submitted question is from friend of the show, Alyssa Jeanette. And she wants to know if you have, or you could tell our listeners about any uh, cutting edge research or anything that is um, recently published or, or about to be published um, that's like really like cutting edge news that, that we didn't know before about dinosaurs. So this is really tricky because I, I am a volunteer with the Natural History Museum. I have access to amazing dinosaurs that haven't been published yet. I have access to incredible work and, and research and information that doesn't really get to be out in the public very much. But that also means I have to be really careful about what I do with that information. I can say that we have had a couple brand new dinosaurs that have been found in Utah that hopefully kind of expand our research, specifically in the Ankylosaurus family. We've we've found a lot of these heavy armored reptiles in Utah that are unlike anything we've found before. Um, And we've got some awesome volunteers up in the labs working on it right now. Uh, Hopefully we'll be able to produce more information on it. So while I can't say specifically any new information, I'm confident that our museum specifically, the Natural History Museum of Utah, is going to produce some really, really beautiful dinosaurs in the next couple of years. Very cool. Yeah, any anybody that can bring cultural attention to science is is I think really important. When um, when you discover uh, new dinosaurs, is there a process or or a set of guidelines or anything that goes into naming them? Is it is it like hurricanes where we have like a list of pre chosen names and like this is the next one we use, or is it like based on who discovered it? So it's definitely it, it has a lot of factors. Uh, that play into it, but a, a lot of them are very, very personal. Uh, we've had a couple dinosaurs that, you know, have been discovered and worked on by a bunch of different people. And there were a lot of different people involved in the discovery. And they usually just get a generic Latin name that either have to do something with where they were found in Utah or, you know, what their armor plates looked like, what their vertebrates looked like. But there have been quite a few dinosaurs in the last couple of years that were discovered, worked on, researched, and produced essentially for display by one person. And Randy Johnson, if you ever listen to this, I'm calling you out specifically. Randy Johnson is a volunteer with the Natural History Museum that, you know, he found, and I'm going to butcher the name of his dinosaur because of course he chose a bizarre one, (laughs) Acanocephalus johnsoni. So an Acanocephalus <laughs> is an Ankylosaurid dinosaur. So it's got those big, heavy armor plates and that huge whacking tail. Acanocephalus johnsoni is named after him, Randy Johnson, because he is the one that discovered it in the field. He spent probably 10 years in the labs cleaning it and prepping it and making it beautiful for display that he wasn't allowed to name it himself. You, you can't choose the name for your dinosaur like that, especially if you're the one that's done all the work on it. You can't be like, oh yeah, this one I'm naming after me. I wish you could, but I don't think that's a possibility. Um, but there's typically a team of people that decide who has really put the most effort into this. And obviously, Randy Johnson 
put his most effort into his specific dinosaur that he found. Um, and so this small committee made up of five or 10 people from the paleontology department said, you know what? This is Randy Johnson's dinosaur. And then he got his Acanocephalus Johnsoni. And so I, I'd love to say, you know, put in the work and put in the effort and someone will name it after you. But mm. that's not always the case. But it was with Randy. So way to go, Randy. You got a dinosaur way, named after you. <laughs> way to go, Randy. Uh, heroes of paleontology. Right? Um, yeah. <laughs> I believe, I believe uh, Steven Spielberg had a dinosaur named after him. I think it's the Jurassosaurus or something like that. Yeah, something like that. I, <laughs> I'm sure that he didn't get a pick that either, right? Yeah. Um, but <laughs> it wouldn't surprise I, me if, if, he's, if they named it that specifically because he brought attention to a specific you know, subset of dinosaurs. And it's really nine out of 10 times. If you do the work, you get the credit. Yeah. And I think it had also had a lot to do with donating a lot of of funding to digs in in China and and things like that. Yeah, exactly. You know, put in the goods and you'll get the goods, right? (laughs) I do. I just thought of another question before we move on to land before time, if it's okay. Yeah, for sure. Do you have a extinction theory that you subscribe to more than others? I know that people want me to say the meteor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, you know, I have different extinction theories for different groups of dinosaurs, especially because there's no actual way to say, you know, all of them disappeared all at the same time because of one specific factor. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely don't subscribe to that thought at all. I know that a lot of prehistoric animals that predated dinosaurs died because of pretty much an atomic bomb that naturally occurred in the water and it just wiped them out. And, and for example, a phytosaur, uh, there's a strong theory that supports a phytosaur didn't actually evolve into anything, especially not a crocodile, even though it has a very similar look to it because it was just wiped out by an organic atomic bomb underwater. Uh, So I think that kind of killed off a whole subset of dinosaurs and prehistoric creatures themselves. I think food source had to play a big part of it. These huge, huge dinosaurs. I'll give an example. The, The Patagotitan Maorum is a dinosaur in Argentina. I believe there's only been one found ever. And in my personal opinion, there is no way that animal could have survived with the food source it required for very long. I wouldn't be surprised if there's only a couple of those that exist ever. I think food source has a huge part to play in it. Honestly, the meteor is a very commonly accepted theory. I wouldn't rule it out. It might be meteor, asteroid, meteorite, whatever you'd like to distinguish it as that rained down and, you know, flipped the world upside down, if you will. Sure. That's, that's definitely not something I would necessarily rule out. I can't say definitively, um, but I'd love to continue to hear more theories than I'm hearing on my TikTok page because sure I'm, I'm getting a lot of pretty wild ones and I, I'm loving it. <laughs> What's one of the wildest ones that you've gotten? So, you know, one of the, one of, I think the ones that is really commonly accepted, but I think it's completely outrageous is that there was a flood about 6,000 years ago and that's what took them out. Um, 6,000 6, years 000, ago? Yeah, just 6,000. 
I'm not great at math, Eliza, but uh, that doesn't seem like long enough. It does absolutely does not. (laughs) But I'm getting that one so much in the comments on my video. And, you know, I'm okay for people to believe what they want. I'm fine with it. I have no problem with that. But I can almost essentially guarantee it was much more than 6,000 years ago. Could have been a flood. Sure. I wouldn't put it past the earth evolving like that. But you guys, it's been a hot minute. It has not been 6,000 years. I can't emphasize that enough. It's been like 65 million. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like we have human structures older than 6,000 years. Yes, that's what (laughs) I'm saying. (laughs) And don't get me wrong, if they did somehow exist 6,000 years ago, and I also existed 6,000 years ago, I would have loved that. I would have loved to see him in person. Why not? You know, I'm, and the more I think about that, the more I'm rooting for that theory. Let's all, you know, coexist together. What's the worst that could happen? If there's one dinosaur that you could have either as a pet or that you could ride, what would it be? Stegosaurus. No, like no contest. 100%. Stegosaurus is kind of known in the paleo community as the sweetheart dinosaur. And, you know, we don't have a lot of evidence of a stegosaurus being particularly more violent than any other dinosaur. And as a dinosaur, that's about as good as you can get is no more violent than any others. Um, So if I'm going to have chaos in my house, I'd love it to be the sweetheart stegosaurus. I'd love that. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Definitely not a carnivore for sure. Uh, No, that that's how I become prey. And I, you know, but, but I do have to preface, there's like a whole franchise on why bringing dinosaurs as pets is a really bad idea. Um, I'm very anti-dinosaur cloning. That That's, you know, we all die. The end of every movie. It never turns out well. It always ends in disaster. Oh, <laughs> I couldn't imagine how it would play out in the real world. <laughs> <laughs> Eliza, do you, is there anything more uh, that you want to say about um, your research, your work before we start talking about the land before time? You know, I really want to encourage everybody to Support your local museums, support the local culture and arts that you have around you. Museums offer such a cultural insight to the worlds that we've lived in and the world that we live in now and how those intersect. And I think in order to have a safe and peaceful and equitable future, we really need to examine what has happened in the past. And museums are a great way to do that. Um, volunteer for your museums. That is how museums thrive. You know, a lot of them are are state-run industries that get minimal funding. Volunteers are the heart of the museum industry. And I cannot emphasize this enough. Please, please go volunteer. It's so worth it. You know, you find dinosaurs sometimes, you guys. Isn't that worth it, right? (laughs) I And I would just really encourage everybody, go visit your local museum this weekend. Go see it. Go enjoy it and have a good time. Awesome. Yeah. And and right now, of course, we're all going through it. But a museum is typically a, a pretty spacious, uh, large place, a good a good place to go and, and still practice social distancing. Definitely. Um, Our Natural History Museum of Utah, you reserve tickets in advance. They're only letting in a very, very small number of people, which I think really helps the idea that 
you know, you don't need to be all packed together to have a good time. There's definitely no need for that right now, especially right now. But, you know, there's also different ways to support your local museums. Uh, Subscribe to their blog posts, subscribe to their YouTube pages, um, read their newsletters, um, donate if you can. I mean, it's, it's so important to keep these institutions alive. And whether that's through social distancing and, and going to see some dinosaurs, you know, by yourself or with your family, I think it's totally worth it to, to make sure that you are supporting these institutions that really keep us grounded and keep us as humans linked to a future that we can see ourselves in happily and safely. I could not agree more, and I can personally endorse that because I myself am a member of uh, the best museum I've ever been to right here in New York City, which is the American Museum of Natural History. Yes. My favorite (laughs) museum personally, Um, and I I really enjoy being a member of that and getting to see all of the... Siri thought I was talking to her, sorry. Oh, it's okay. (laughs) Let me just disable that real quick. Siri, I don't need you right now. Thank you, though. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my Alexa tends to do that like in the middle of the night and I'm getting real tired of it. I can't keep getting woken up by that stupid blue ring. I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, we're talking about robots versus dinosaurs. What a perfect example of a robot interrupting our dinosaur conversation. How dare Yeah, they're, they're, they're getting a little too friendly here. I'm, I'm getting a little <laughs> upset with that. <laughs> Just on the topic, are there, are there any uh, sort of robots or robotics used in your field? Um, not particularly. Uh, some, of the, some of the dinosaurs that we get are a little too big to carry down ourselves, especially when we're finding them in the field. Sometimes we have to carry them out via transport Um, And sometimes that's a helicopter. We can't use any wheels. And so we can't like put it in a wheelbarrow or put it in a car or take it on a bike. We haven't tried dog sledding, but I feel like that may be a possibility at some point. Um, But sometimes we use a chainsaw to cut rock out of the mountain. Sometimes, or not a chainsaw, a concrete saw. Um, And sometimes we use a helicopter to life flight our dinosaurs out in the labs no we use we use toothbrushes like you see in jurassic park right at the at the very cool, beginning yeah. when they're using like tiny paintbrushes and toothbrushes that's really what we use that's probably the most accurate part of that entire movie um it's it's very you know we found a good way to do it a hundred years ago and we're just gonna stick with that <laughs> awesome. so i'd love to use more robots if they could help me speed up the process of putting a skull that has 12,000 pieces back together, I would sign up in a heartbeat. I'll, I'd let it have a turn. <laughs> Eliza, let's talk about The Land Before Time. Okay. The, the Land Before Time, if you have not seen it, it is a 1988 animated film. It's a Don Bluth film produced by Lucas and Spielberg, George, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, in case you're not sure who I'm talking about when I say <laughs> Lucas and Spielberg. And it is... A fantastic animated movie. It, uh, the animation itself still holds up today. We were, we were briefly talking at the beginning about how uh, the message in it is still very poignant and still very good. How is the dinosaur science in it? We did mention that the, the era might be a little bit uh, playing fast and loose with which dinosaurs we would have seen interacting. But in, but in the rest of it, how is the depiction of dinosaurs or the, or the earth at the time? Um. 
You know, there. I, I, like you said, I think the biggest difference is that the time period is completely wrong. There's, there's less time between us and a Tyrannosaurus Rex than a Tyrannosaurus Rex and Littlefoot. There's a bigger time gap in between those two animals than there are between us and a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Um, and so I think that really kind of puts into perspective how completely wrong the timeline is. Um, and then there's a couple of different, you know, scientific points that I want to just point out here um, that are a little unrealistic. Littlefoot's mother would not have been a so caring. Littlefoot's mother, who I have just grown to love. And, you know, I think I say sweet Littlefoot to my dog every day. Uh, you know, she's she's given me a lot of heartwarming content to rely on. But she would have left Littlefoot, you know, to to fend for himself at a very mm. young age before he'd hatched. Um, often like sea turtles do, you know, they, they lay their soft shell eggs in the water uh, and then call it good and take off. And then the sea turtles hatch and try their very best. And sometimes just doesn't work. That is what Littlefoot would have had to deal with. The, the kind of apocalypse that you see in that movie, the, the great famine and the, the great earthquake that kind of take place in that wouldn't have been during that time period of mm-hmm. any of the dinosaurs that exist in that movie. The land itself is very, very misrepresented. I can't say 100% what it would have been, but definitely not this apocalypse wasteland that it kind of is portrayed as. The <laughs> there's a it lot does, of it does make oh, for a great yeah. dramatic movie setting. I'm not going to deny that, and I want to make it really clear that you know dissecting this movie from a from a scientific standpoint does not lessen my love for it. You know, I, I this movie Neither itself is is you know really cute and adorable, and and it's great. If if they had uh, depicted the uh Littlefoot's mother the way that you're describing that you know she had abandoned before hatching we wouldn't have gotten one of the what is in my opinion one of the best lines in the movie that I've remembered since I saw it as a kid which is when she says let your heart guide you it whispers so listen closely to me that is beautiful poetry it is and and I think it resonates through generations I think it resonates through you know especially children that are trying to find their way uh, and you know regrettably adults that are trying to find their way it's hard to determine what you want to do it's you know even at this point in my life I'm not sure that I'm on the career path that I'll be on forever um, and I think as you as you grow older that line makes more sense and hits harder you're we all have to follow our hearts and it's hard and it's scary, um, but it's worth it if, you know, you can find the metaphorical great valley of your life where, where you're going to find friends and family, where you're going to find the hope and survival that you need. I think it makes it all worth it. Absolutely. I had a question that kept bugging me throughout the movie the last time I watched it, which was last night. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Why, when Littlefoot's mom gives him the tree star, why doesn't he eat it? I know why he doesn't eat it later after he's been carrying it around. But at that point, it seems like they're already kind of starving. And he just sort of carries it around like a toy for such a long time and uh, continuing through the point where he's actually starving. 
So why wasn't he eating it right away? <laughs> just because it was a gift? So, yeah, I, you know, scientifically, I do not have an answer. He should have eaten it. Um, <laughs> uh, morally and ethically, you know, I, I think that the tree star almost represents the last of his mom, the last of his mm-hmm. hope. And, and if he were to have kind of abandoned it or, you know, resigned to the fact that that was it, it wouldn't have led him like it did. Um, because I think the tree star is what is driving him emotionally and morally to help these other, you know, juvenile dinosaur protagonists find this great valley. Uh, and so I think it was less of a food source and more of a, like a guiding star, a Northern star. And I think he should have eaten it much earlier than that, uh, scientifically, but morally, I can understand why. <laughs> Speaking of, of things eating or starving, in kids' movies, this is something I've noticed, and, and I wonder if you've noticed this too, especially in animated movies, carnivores are almost always depicted as like the villain. And we're almost, it's almost like we're taught as kids to feel callous about a carnivore can go ahead and starve to death because they're mean. And the only reason they're trying to eat our friends and our heroes of this movie is because they're mean yeah. and evil. <laughs> yeah, I think that gets depicted a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so do you, do, you feel any, do you feel any sympathy for the Longtooths in Land Before Time or do you see them as the villains of the movie? You know, yes and no. Uh, in National Geographic, you know, on that on the National Geographic channel, on the Discovery Channel, on Animal Planet, you know, you're going to find those documentaries about the hungry seals that need to eat the penguins. Are you rooting for the penguins? Are you rooting for the seals? It's sad for everybody. You know, if the seals die because they can't eat anything, you're going to feel horrible for the seals. If the penguins die because they get eaten, you're going to feel horrible for the penguin. There's no winning. <laughs> um, I... <laughs> from an like like an ecological standpoint where i already feel this deep connection with dinosaurs this deep love and appreciation for dinosaurs um which in this viral tiktok i do tear up genuinely i wow. am actually sad about these dinosaurs going extinct um you know morally yeah i do feel bad they're trying to survive they yeah it's highly unlikely that dinosaurs ever killed for sport. They just wouldn't have done that. It it wouldn't have made sense. And you don't really find carnivores today that hunt for sport other than humans. We're really almost exclusively the only animals that do that. Yeah, um, like maybe orcas and, and a maybe orcas kind of. Yeah, but but even then, that's that's few and far between of the ones that actually do. Uh, yeah. So you can't you know blame it on a whole species, right? And so these these poor <laughs> these poor dinosaurs trying to survive by eating babies and their moms. You know, you do what you got to do. <laughs> Sometimes I hate to say it, it do be like that, it and there's like just that. there's no getting around it. Uh, yeah, I feel bad for them. I'm gonna go with that. I do feel bad for them. The movie Zootopia explored that in a really interesting way. Have you seen Zootopia? I have, yeah. Um, I, I, are you referring to the tiger? Kind of like when, yeah. like getting therapy. I feel, and just the concept of of not writing off 
the carnivores just because that is their nature. And and that's generally the message of the movie. There's a lot more layers to it than that. That's another brilliant, like very multi-layered yes. uh, movie with a message. But yeah, I, I just, I, I think it's fascinating how they handled that concept of like, this is a world where carnivores and herbivores are friends and like coexist peacefully. And this is why. And they, they bother to take the time to explain it. And I, I think that's really fascinating. And yeah. And that I've... I doubt that I've actually ever seen that in any other movie. And, and I think mm. you're right. This, this trope of carnivores attacking innocent families. Um, it's a bad choice. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I kind of say this in, in Beauty and the Beast, when Belle is attacked by the wolves, the wolves are hungry. The wolves need to eat too. The wolves are, you know, they're just trying to survive the winter. And Belle was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's where the movie should have ended. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's tough for her. But, you know, I don't think the wolves are the villains because that's just how they are, even though they're portrayed as the scariest part of that movie, right? And mm-hmm. and so I think that it's it's much more, I don't know, common to see it with with depictions of carnivores as these horrible, horrible meat eaters. Um, but watching it from an ecological standpoint, they're just trying to survive like all of us. And, you know, that's hard. <laughs> And I, I think over time we've 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 very much shifted our, our perspective on that because we've gone from in the '80s. This is a, an example in Land Before Time with the way the long tooths are depicted. I'm not sure if you've seen this movie. It was covered on a previous episode. It's called My Science Project. It's very obscure. I have um, not ever even heard of that, but it sounds really interesting. Not a surprise. It's it's it has almost no digital footprint. It's a movie that is very much in danger of being completely lost to the sands of time because even DVD copies of it you can really only find on auction for upwards of a hundred dollars. Oh boy! Um, the movie itself. So uh, we reviewed it a few episodes ago. Actually, I will say we reviewed it in an episode that's coming up in in the future. We're gonna you're gonna hear our my full thoughts along with my friend Jason about that movie. But the main thing that I want to point out is there, there, we picked that movie because there's a dinosaur in it. And the dinosaur is very much depicted as this like obstacle that the heroes have to get past and they have to destroy it to get past it. And it's like this triumphant moment for the protagonist. Where, whereas now, it, if you've seen the most recent Jurassic World movie, Fallen Kingdom, yes, Blue is absolutely one of the heroes in that movie. Blue makes decisions, moral decisions of who to kill and not to kill. And I think it's fascinating that we've we've not only had had more sympathy recently for carnivores for, you know, these things that we lo- used to look up as the, as the big bad, very sim- oversimplified in an oversimplified way to where we are now. And I, I think it's a good I think it's progress. I think it's a good direction to be moving in. What do you think? Yeah, I you know, I think that we as people decisions are getting harder. As human beings, decisions are getting harder. It's harder to justify being a perfect person all the time because we can't survive like that. And and we have to make really hard decisions even if it means, you know, putting ourselves in danger, even if we're the bad guys. I feel like feeling sympathy for these characters that have for so long had this trope of being horrible, horrible animals, horrible, horrible carnivores. Having that growth and that change, I think is very, very, you know, it's a strong analogy to where 
we are as humans making those same really hard decisions that sacrifices have to be made. Um, and I think it helps us sympathize with the carnivores, if you will, that are inside of us. And I think it, you know, it helps us, the parts that we feel bad about, it makes it easier to live with ourselves if we know it's not all bad. That's a really good way to look at it. When this movie came out in 1988, what do you think made them, made this animation studio? It probably had a lot to do with Spielberg and his own personal fascination with dinosaurs, in my opinion. What do you think made them want to make a kid's movie that is kind of what I would describe as dinosaur Bambi? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) But why dinosaurs and not, for example, uh, dolphins, horses, or anything else? Why, Why do you think they went with dinosaurs? So I think that dinosaurs were probably up until this point depicted as as kind of thick, kind of dumb. You know, they'd been used in the Flintstones as a, you know, a, a nice household pet. They've been used in, in a couple previous movies as just vicious animals or really kind of dumb neighbors of other animals, right? And and I think dinosaurs hadn't been depicted as complex and intelligent and kind and and survivors i don't think they'd been depicted like that yet which is why i think it worked so well cuz we see horses and dolphins we already know that they're intelligent we're we're around the intelligence on a regular basis and and i don't think that had been depicted in animals we've never been around and i know it's not a dinosaur but the dodo bird gets a really bad rap for being really stupid I don't think it actually was. I don't think so either. I think it was in the wrong place at the wrong time, evolutionary speaking. And I think it gets a bad rap as being, wow, it was dumb enough to go extinct. I don't believe that that was absolutely at all the case. I think you it know, just got and- out technology. It didn't really, <laughs> by no fault of its own. Exactly. It, it lost the capacity to exist just because of how the earth developed. That's a similar a thing to what- compete with a gun, you know? Yeah, right. (laughs) And I think that's kind of, you know, a similar thing that happened to the dinosaurs. And so we writ them off as we've written them off as unintelligent and they were dumb enough to go extinct in the first place. And I think this movie was the first way to say, you know, maybe they weren't like that. Maybe they had those really hard decisions to make and those really challenging moral turpitudes that they had to overcome. I think it was revolutionary in the fact that it, I think, did them justice. I think dinosaurs were very smart and probably had to make a lot of those similar decisions. How am I going to survive in a world that doesn't want me to exist anymore? And I think that was really well represented in a way that it hadn't been up until that movie. Is this your favorite dinosaur movie? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> uh, yes, it is. <laughs> and I may be just a little biased because I've seen it like every weekend since I was born. <laughs> yeah. This is this is that movie that, you know, I put on before bed and I like to fall asleep to it. If I need a good cry, I watch Littlefoot's mom die. If I need to just like vent some emotional magnitude, this is the movie I'm going to choose. I, I could is, not live without it. <laughs> it is cathartic. It is fantastic. Do you have one like absolute favorite moment of the movie? 
when Littlefoot's mom dies. And I know that's like the trope, you know, um, but the the raw emotion and the fear that you experience with Littlefoot, I think, I think that's a big indicator of how it feels to lose something that comfortable. Because I don't think that Littlefoot is exactly losing his mom. I think he's losing his home, his comfort, his adolescence. I think once Littlefoot's mom dies, he is a different dinosaur. He's a changed dinosaur. He, yeah. he will never survive like he did. And he has to adapt to that. And, and I've had a couple of instances in my own life that I felt that exact same thing from this portion of my life on, I will never be the same, which I'm grateful for. I would hate to be the person I was 10 years ago. And I'm mm. glad that I changed. Um, but yeah, it's he instantaneously is put in a position where he has to become a leader and he is he's learning how to walk like he's learning how what the world is and at the same time has to lead others through it and it's that's a lot of huge burden to put on something that was born days ago (laughs) yeah I I and I feel like a lot of people don't realize that they've had these opportunities themselves to change like that Mm. until they've already changed and and it's hard to recognize that you're in that situation when you are in that situation. And it's easy to look back and say, oh man, yeah, I've had plenty of those times. But you don't always see it when you're in them. And it's scary and it's terrifying and you're alone and afraid. And I think this is a good representation that even through those moments, you get through it. And sometimes you can't do it alone, but sometimes you have to do it alone. And And I think when Littlefoot pretty much gets separated from everybody else and has to do a portion of this moral and, you know, ethical journey of trying to survive and help everyone that he can, but still take care of himself really shows how he grows from just wanting to play with his friends and hang out with his mom and eat tree stars that he now has to fight off you know, terrifying animals and, and lead people through a a deserted wasteland of famine and death. That, that's such a huge shift. And, and I, I feel like I've been through plenty of those, but never realized it until I was already through. That's Um, awesome. Thank you. (laughs) I, I, I do want to touch on one other part of this movie that I think really kind of defined me as a kid. And it's the part after Sarah has escaped from the rest of the group, she, she kind of runs off and, and doesn't really, you know, want to be a part of this anymore. And she has to find her own journey and she's stubborn enough to not want to listen to anybody else. And then everyone is in danger, right? And they're trying to, to drown this huge, huge creature that's been terrorizing them throughout the movie, of course. And they're trying to push a boulder on top. Mm. All of these tiny juvenile dinosaurs are trying to, you know, kind of get this thing to move and it's just not working and they're never in the right place at the right time with the right strength. And Sarah comes through and just crashes into that boulder, saves the day, redemption, it's great, right? I think that definitely as a kid defined to me the idea of redemption, that if I have gone down a path so difficult that I have cut myself off from everybody, it doesn't have to stay like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I can swallow my pride and suck it up and help people that didn't help me, even if it means, you know, sacrificing my pride, it's worth it for the greater good. 
And it's worth it. If, if I'm growing as a person and, and I think that helped me as a kid, you know, own up to my mistakes, own up to the follies that I had been pushed through in my life. And this was a great depiction of that. I was, I was a tough kid. I really resonates. I, I resonate with Sarah more than any other character. I think in any film, um, I was, I was kind of a brat, you know, I have this, this is super off topic. I have this one memory at a McDonald's play place. I was about four years old and I, I was at the very top of the biggest slide in the entire play place. And this huge, huge 11 year old kid comes up to me and is like, go down the slide, you baby. And I just turn around and deck him in the face as hard as I can. And you can just hear this loud Cool. And I just scream at the top of my lungs, don't you call me a baby. Um, and then I just refused to go down the slide out of a matter of pride. It was, hey. uh, you know, I wasn't go down, going to go down because someone told me to at that point. Yeah. Um, and I just came up, I just climbed up here to get a better view. I wasn't going to yeah, slide. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so the fact that you're telling me to slide is making me not want to slide even more, right? And so I think I resonated with the fact that Sarah was exactly like that. You know, she's tough and she's sensitive and she gets her feelings hurt really, really badly, but she's able to kind of push past that and focus on the greater good and focus on the fact that she doesn't have to remain the person that she was, that her adolescence has changed. Her life has changed. Her moral driving force is now completely different. And I think that really stuck with me as a kid. That's beautiful. That's really well worded. There's a moment that I really love where Sarah is very asserting her fierce independence when they're all working together, except for her to get leaves from the top of the tree. And she's trying to butt the butt the trunk of the tree. Um, and Littlefoot, <laughs> without any ego, without any resentment, he tricks her into thinking that she did it all on her own. And then just sort of like walks away and lets her have her triumphant moment. And I think that's such a beautiful moment of friendship. Yeah, I think that really makes a huge difference in, you know, in not only their relationship as friends, but Littlefoot's relationship with himself. Because Mm. he's just, he has done, you know, something selfless. And and I think that that makes a, a big difference in how he matures. I, I I think that that's another one of those things that he's grown past the need for praise. He's grown past the need for anything that would even fall into that category. And he's ready to be selfless. He's ready to be a leader. He's, he's ready to take on those challenges that he knew he was going to have to at some point. But I think that shows when he's ready. And, and I love that part. I love that. Eliza. Is there any, um, maybe a piece of trivia or like, or a personal connection, something that you think I would not know about this movie? Oh boy. Well, you not know, I, on the spot. it could be a personal <laughs> story. No, I, I, um, I mean, as, from a scientific standpoint, one thing that Land Before Time really, really got right was the fact that these juvenile dinosaurs were friends. Yes, they were in completely different time periods, but dinosaurs were incredibly social creatures. Mm. They, they really did hang out with each other. To quote and Dr. Grant, they do move in herds. They, uh, yes, all together. <laughs> and, and I'll, you know, there's a specific quarry, quarry in Utah called the Cleveland Lloyd Quarry. And there's a huge mystery surrounding this area. A, a whole 
flood of dinosaur bones from a bunch of different kinds of dinosaurs, ranging from very, very juvenile to fully grown dinosaurs, um, mostly allosauruses, were found at this quarry. And we don't know how they all ended up together. And, and there's lots of theories as to why they were all together in the first place. But one of those theories is that, you know, they were herd animals. They all hung out with each other anyway. And so I think Land Before Time really gets that right. They were social creatures. They would have they would have been hanging out with each other and trying to adventure. I have one more question about the movie, and then I have two bonus questions. All right. So uh, I believe you've, you've more, more or less answered this, but I like to ask my guest, would you count this movie as a plus one or minus one for its representation of dinosaurs? We have a running tally going. Right now, dinosaurs and robots are evenly matched. But to be fair, I've reviewed more robot movies than dinosaur movies. Um, until now. So this one might tip the scales. All right. Well, I am ready to tip the scales. I think from a paleontologist standpoint, this movie is one point in favor of dinosaurs. I, I think, you know, they don't shrink wrap their dinosaurs in this movie. They make them meaty. They make them nice. There's not as many feathers as I'd like to see, but, but the actual meat and the fat on the, on the dinosaurs, I think is an excellent representation you know, the fact that they represented dinosaurs like no dinosaurs had been represented yet, mm-hmm. intelligent and savvy and and able to mature and make changes in their own lives, I think is a very accurate depiction of what dinosaurs would have had to go through if something like this were to have happened. I think for a children's movie, it represents dinosaurs about as good as you can get. <laughs> you heard it right here, folks. Eliza, I have two bonus questions. Yes. This section of the podcast is called, What's Your Snack? Eliza, what's your snack? When you go to the movie theater, uh, or I should say when we all used to be able to go to movie theaters, <laughs> yeah, <really. laughs> um, do you have a, a snack that is your favorite kind of snack? And now that we're all kind of in a position where we can only watch movies at home, <laughs> do you have that same snack? Do you plan meals around when you're going to watch a movie? Or has that changed at all? All right. So definitely my snack is Raisinets. I, I have a very a familial connection with Raisinets. Uh, my grandma would keep open boxes of Raisinets in her purse at the bottom of her purse and would hand oh. them to us. It was terrifying. And I <laughs> loved it. It was an adventure at every bite. I kid you not. <laughs> and, and now, um, you dice. know, right. <laughs> and now every time I have Raisinets, you know, it's, it's very, normal and from the box. And I don't like purposefully dump them into the pocket of my jeans and ruffle them (laughs) around a little bit and then eat them. Um, I think I've matured in that way, Uh, but that's (laughs) definitely my snack. Now that you've mentioned that, I have not had Raisinets since January when I last saw a movie in theaters. Uh, That is devastating. And I am, okay, I'm leaving right after this. And I need to pick up some Raisinets, go into a gas station and just run and grab some. I, I can't wait anymore. <laughs> awesome. I haven't really had popcorn. I don't have a microwave uh, and I'm very bad at making popcorn on the stove. So I really haven't had popcorn since the last time I went to the movies. Oh, that's just devastating. Oh yeah. my gosh. So, so I've, <laughs> I've got this uh, like refillable popcorn tub. I don't know if this is a nationwide thing or just a Utah thing, but we've got these movie theaters that you have these huge like refillable pop, but it's like, yeah, it's just massive. I mean, it's, it's probably 
oh, like two gallons of popcorn. Oh, yeah. It's it's huge. It's an American sized popcorn bucket. I can't <laughs> emphasize that enough. And and we used to be able to just take it and refill it right at the movie theater for like three bucks. I mean, it was such a steal. You you'd pay twenty five at the beginning of the year, and it's good for the whole year for a three dollar fill up. Um, and I mean, these things were the best. And, but you can't do that anymore. You know, you can't use your own popcorn tubs. But I think enough people made a big enough fuss about the popcorn in Utah that you can actually order popcorn online at the movie theater and just drive past and pick it up. They'll bring it out to your car. Um, wow. I have done that once during the pandemic. Totally worth it. We just hopped in our car and drove three blocks to the movie theaters and they very kindly brought us out a bucket of popcorn. So worth it. <laughs> Here in New York, it's more, and I'm sure this is true other other places, they sell, they do a lot of like promotional tie-ins. So you can like pay a lot of money for a, a refillable tin and bring yeah. that with you next time. Okay. Final bonus question. Yes. Uh, in the land before time, if we were to recast two of the characters in this movie with Whoopi Goldberg and Danny DeVito, oh which goodness. characters would you cast them as? And would that improve the movie in any way? Oh, that is excellent. Do you ask that question every time? Yes, I do. That is an incredible question. And I love that. Um, all right, I'm going to do... Oh. Okay, I want Whoopi Goldberg to play Sarah's mom. And I recognize that Sarah's dad is kind of like the authority figure in that movie, mm-hmm. especially at the beginning. Oh, no, but then it wouldn't work because then you don't get like this. Oh, no, never mind. I strike that. I'm choosing Whoopi Goldberg as somebody else. Okay. Oh, but now I have to think about it. Oh, gosh. You know, I'd listen to Danny DeVito be Littlefoot's mom. Okay. <laughs> I would listen to Danny DeVito be Littlefoot's mom. Yeah. I would also listen to Whoopi Goldberg be Littlefoot's mom. I think a lot of people could play Littlefoot's mom. Man, this is such a hard question. I have no stinking idea. I mean, I'd listen to Danny DeVito be Littlefoot. I would watch that whole movie. I think it wouldn't improve the movie very much, but I would definitely (laughs) listen to it. I think I would cast DeVito as Sarah. And I think that has a lot to do with just him being usually depicted as like surly and, uh, you know, that tough, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I'm getting like a lot of Phil vibes from Hercules. So like, he could be a good Sarah. Whoopi Goldberg. That's a little tougher to cast in this movie. I I didn't actually think about my answer for it, but I, I I like Sarah's mom and I don't know, maybe, maybe Petrie. Petrie's yeah. really fun and like has like this nervous energy that I think Whoopi could do really well. Oh, definitely. Yes, that like that like high strung, that high energy, like those quick vocal quips. I think that would be excellent. I oh, okay. How do we get in touch uh, with these people? Can I call <laughs> Hollywood or how do, how do I make this happen? <laughs> well, if you get to be in the next Jurassic World movie, uh, make sure that you bring this up with Spielberg. Or oh yeah, I am. I am seriously tempted to start a petition. So I actually had a, a digital like marketing rep from Universal Studios reach out to me. Um, Amazing. And they were like, you know, I can't put you in the next movie, but I'd love to get your contact information. And I was like, Why'd you even reach out if you can't get me in the movie? That's heartbreaking. That was like what I, the only thing I wanted. But if I, you know, if my acting career suddenly takes off, 
I'm making sure that this reboot happens exactly how we've described it. <laughs> Excellent. Maybe um, they they want to be in touch, keep in touch with you to use you as like a reference for things or like a, 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 a an expert consultant on things. You know, it's funny. They I, I've heard like in cop shows, they usually will like bring in a detective and say, you know, how realistic is that? And the detective will say, yeah, not at all realistic. And they'll just do it anyway. So I'm really hesitant that that's what would happen. They would actually call me and be like, hey, how accurate is it uh, if we portray a dinosaur like that? And I was like, oh, that's absolutely not accurate. And I was like, all right, great. Let's do it. <laughs> so um, I, I, I'd be willing to do that. I, I don't know how, you know, it would ever work out, but I, I would be excited to try that. <laughs> well, I have had a great time interviewing you for Robots versus Dinosaurs, and I'd love to know if we could consider you a consultant for our show in case future listeners have burning questions about dinosaurs or anything like that. Would we be able to perhaps submit them to you or could I reach out to you if I have a, like a list of questions? Oh yeah, I would love that. I, I you know, and if I can't have the answer cuz I didn't have the answer for a couple of these, um if I don't have the answer, I have the resources to find the answer. I work with an awesome team up at the Natural History Museum of Utah. You know, there is a team of experts that granted are way more qualified than I am. Um but if I don't have an answer for you, I am happy to find an answer for you and I would love to do that. Awesome. And any time that you want to come back on the show to talk more movies, like if you want to review any of the um, dozens of Land Before Time sequels, uh, uh, yes. I'd be happy to invite you back. <laughs> that would be awesome. Thank you. Awesome. So uh, thank you all for listening. This was Eliza Peterson, friend of the show, pa- budding paleontologist, future paleontologist. I believe that you will be a paleontologist very soon. You can check out her Twitter, her Instagram, and TikTok, which I have linked in the show notes. You can also check out her interview with Insider Magazine and one with BuzzFeed. And please, please, please check out the website that we're linking to for the Utah Natural History Museum. Please, if you can, volunteer your time at your local history museum, or even if you have to drive a little bit of a distance to get to one. (laughs) Uh, It's totally worth it, according to Eliza, and I believe her. Eliza, any final thoughts before we wrap up today? You know, this has been such an incredible opportunity. I'm I'm grateful, granted terrified, to be kind of in this momentary spotlight for the silly little dinosaur pun video that I did, but it seriously changed my life. This has been an awesome experience. Um, I've loved being able to talk to you guys. This is this is absolutely a dream come true. I'm so excited to listen to this when it goes up. Uh, shout out to my mom. She listens to podcasts. Hi, mom. And, you know, I'm excited to come back and discuss the 13 sequels to Land Before Time. <laughs> and we'll try and knock out all of them. So. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, Eliza. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Before time seven, the land before time eight, the land before time nine, the land before time ten, the land before time eleven, the land before time twelve, and the land before time thirteen.